uh, world domination has been the ambition for, for many throughout the years. You can go through the history books and you can read of various nations who have tried their best to dominate and take over the world. From the Persian Empire to the French Empire to the German Empire, many have tried their best attempt in completely dominating the known world. Historically, the most successful nations that have come close to achieving such world domination have been the Chinese and the Roman Empire. And the one thing we find in common as we study the history of nations is there this one thing that holds all of those who sought to control the world together. There's this one common theme that runs through all these uh, various empires that try to conquer the world. That all these nations, who may be successful for a time, eventually fall. All nations, all empires, all kings, all emperors, who at one time will rule, and it seems like their rule and reign will be forever, eventually fall. The Roman Empire has failed. The Chinese Empire has crumbled. The ambitions of other nations have not come to full and complete reality. And as we read the history books of the people, of the nations, and the power of these nations and individuals, every power ultimately seems to give way to another power. One power rises, dominates for a while, and then another power rises and takes over that one who is currently dominating. But saints, we are to be of good cheer. If you've come this morning feeling low and down, let me give you some exciting news. That there is one kingdom that will not lose its power to another. That there is one king who will not be removed from his throne and be replaced with another king. And as we come to the 110th chapter of the Psalms, we read of the ultimate victory of the Davidic heir. We read of one king who, unlike the emperors and kings of history, this king will have no end. And his empire is an everlasting one. We won't read of Christ's kingdom rising only to eventually fall. We won't read of, in scriptures, uh, Christ's kingdom uh, uh, conquering for a while, and then another kingdom comes and then conquers Christ's kingdom. But rather, what we will read is Christ's kingdom rising, Christ's kingdom pre- uh, uh, dominating, Christ's kingdom being permanent, and Christ's kingdom ultimately having the victory. As we come to the 110th chapter of Psalms this evening, or this morning, what we will see is the psalmist David puts forth or brings before our eyes the king, the priest king, in all of his glory and majesty and beauty. So saints, this eve, this morning, what I want to do is I want to consider the first seven chapters of Psalm 110. And we will see in Psalm 110 three truths that speak and pertain to the glorious uh, majesty of our priest king, Jesus Christ. The first is Christ, the king. Christ, the king. Second, Christ, the priest. Christ, the priest. And then Christ, the conqueror. Christ, the king. Christ, the priest. And Christ, the conqueror. And saints, if you will, if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word We'll be reading the first seven verses of Psalm 110. Psalm 110, verses 1 through 7. The word of the Lord says this. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your for, of your power and holy array array from the womb of the dawn your root your youth are to you as the dew the lord has sworn and will not change his mind you are a priest forever according 
to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over the broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Saints, you may be seated. And let's consider the first point, the first truth. As we approach the psalm, we see Christ the King. Christ the King. Verses 1 through 3 says this. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. In these three verses, saints, I want us to notice two points, uh, two truths that stand out. And the first is Jesus' divine authority. Jesus' divine authority. Notice the opening verse of uh, verse says this. The Lord says to my Lord. The Lord says to my Lord. Throughout history, the question of, is Jesus God, has been one of high dispute. And in fact, that question of, is Jesus God, is still one of high dispute. In fact, even during the lifetime of Christ, the question of, is Jesus divine, was the talk of all the people. And here in Psalm 110, in the opening verses of Psalm 110, we have a clear affirmation of the deity of Christ. We have a clear affirmation that this Christ, this God-man, is truly God. The Lord says to my Lord, And that's an interesting uh, uh, verse, and it's been much debated throughout the centuries. So, saints, how are we to understand this verse? How How do we interpret this verse? The Lord says to my Lord. Well, in good hermeneutical fashion, we must look to the New Testament and see if the New Testament comments on this verse. And as we uh, peruse the New Testament, we see in Matthew 22, verses 41 through 46, Christ hearkens back to Psalm 10, and he comments on Psalm 10. Matthew 22, verses 41 through 46 say this, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, Who or what do you think about the Christ? So Jesus is asking, Who do you think I am? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So then David calls him Lord. How is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. There's an interesting thing that uh, Christ is doing, and he's proposing a theological riddle. Uh, he's proposing a trap that they have, that they, that they know and they are not going to uh, fall into. He's asking the question, how can the Messiah be David's son if David himself calls him in Psalm 110, Lord? How can Christ be David's son? as many thought he was just simply David's son, if David in Psalm 110 calls the Messiah Lord. It doesn't make any sense. You see, Jesus here is not denying that he's David's son. The Messiah is David's son. But he's implying, according to Psalm 10, he's much more than David's son. But he's also David's Lord. Christ is not just David's son. He's not just the royal heir to the Davidic uh, uh, throne, but he's also David's Lord. In Psalm 110, David, who is the writer, is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is not simply David's greater son, but he's David's Lord. And you have to know the context here. David himself is a king. He is, in his own right, a lord. He should not be saying to about anyone that uh, he, he shouldn't be calling anyone Lord or or master or ruler over him, for he rules over all. But here in Psalm 110, in verse 1, he speaks of the Messiah, who is his Lord. 
When David says in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, he's speaking of the one who precedes him. He's speaking of the preexistent one. He's speaking of Christ, the one who is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. He's speaking of his Lord, and he's speaking of our Lord, Jesus Christ. And notice what David goes on to say. He says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What glorious truth, saints. This is a scripture that we are to read and we are to automatically marvel and worship Christ in light of. Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What we have here is a intertrinitarian dialogue between the Father and the risen Son, Jesus Christ. The Lord, which we see and you see in your, in your text, is in capitalized letters. And, and the reason why it's in capitalized is because it translates to Yahweh, while Lord translates to Adonai. The Father here is speaking to the risen Son, and he's telling the Son, sit at my right hand. Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This, saints, is divine authority of Christ. This is the divine kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's two truths that are interwoven in that word sit. There's, There's two truths that we must recognize when we hear and when we consider in Psalm 110, sit at my right hand. The first is the kingship of Christ. When we hear of of Christ sitting, we are to think of the kingship of Christ. And in the ancient world, the right hand was a place of authority. So to sit at God's right hand means to share his power and position. It means that the God man, Jesus Christ, shares the throne with the Father and the Spirit. But saints, we are to note in good uh, theological and to be precise in our Christology, It's crucial to distinguish between the divine nature of Christ and the human nature of Christ when we approach this text. And we see Christ, according to his human nature, has been exalted to sit at the right hand of the Father. We aren't to think that the Father says to the Son, according to his divine nature, sit at my right hand. For the Son, according to his divine nature, has always sat at the Father's right hand. But what we see in this text is the son, according to his human nature, with respect to his human nature, sits at the right hand of the father. In Christ's divine nature, he could receive nothing. But in Christ's human nature, because of his victory over sin and death, all power has been given unto him in heaven and on earth. Saints, this is glorious truth. For this, saints, is the announcement of the heavenly session of the Messiah. We, we sometimes think, what is Christ doing right now? What is Jesus Christ at this present moment doing? Well, right now he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. This is the heavenly session of our Messiah. This is what Christ is currently doing. The sitting with one respect speaks of his rule at the right hand of God. When Jesus Christ sits at the right hand, he's exercising rule over all the universe. He is the sovereign saints. Our Christ is the ruler of all. The Dutch Reformed theologian Herman Boving says, Christ is not only a prophet who teaches by his word and example, not only a priest who atones by his sacrifice, but also the king who preserves and protects his own. And to that end has been clothed with power in heaven and on earth. He is king in a much more authentic sense than any secular ruler. What does that mean, saints? It means that when we think of Christ, we aren't to leave out him as the king. When we think of Christ, we are to speak of him as our savior. We are to speak of him as prophet, as our priest. We are to think of him as all of the wonderful biblical descriptions of how the Bible portrays our Christ. But we are not to leave out Christ is the king. Christ is the king. He is, according to his divine nature, intrinsically the king, meaning he does not derive his kingship from another. Christ was, according to his divine nature, wasn't a prince one day and then became king. He's always been the king. But according to his human nature, Christ is raised from the dead 
And he's given his kingship from the Father. Christ, according to both natures, is the king saints. And when we think of kings, we think of kings who are just there on their throne, stoic, not doing anything. But our king is active. Our king is not likened to the evil dictators of history. Our king doesn't rule with an iron fist. He's not like those kings of history who die and then are replaced with a royal heir. But our Lord's kingship is from everlasting to everlasting. And saints, when we think of the kingship of Christ, we oftentimes love to sing of Christ, who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We love to tell our friends when they are going through struggles that Christ is king. Christ is, the, is on the throne. But saints, we are not to dare take that as a catchphrase and not live by that truth that Christ is king. That, that we, when we say Christ is the king of kings, we aren't saying that Christ is king over just the heavenly realm. But we are saying Christ is king over heaven and on earth and under the earth. Christ rules over Satan. Christ rules over the highest kings of the land. Christ rules over us. When we think of the kingship of Christ, saints, we are to think of Christ sitting high, but also think of Christ who is active in his kingship, who preserves and protects his people. Christ is a good king. He is a sovereign king. We are to be, we are to live our lives, uh, being ruled by this king. Our presidents, although they have earthly power, do not have sovereign uh, or complete sovereignty and control over our lives. Our Christ has sovereign, complete sovereign control over our lives. We are not to care uh, in, in, in an ultimate sense of what our presidents do and what the Senate does. Saints, we are to live by every word, by our, by, by the Bible. We are to put our faith in Christ and what the word says and not what, 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 not what bill is passed and not what, what Senate says and not what Congress says. For they are not the king. Christ is the king. He is the ruler. So that's the first point that's conveyed in that word sit. It means that Christ is king. It speaks of the divine kingship of Christ. And the second truth that's associated with the word sit is the finished work of Christ. We see that Christ is king, but we also in that word sit speaks of the finished work of Christ. And saints, this is glorious truth. This is truth that we are to marvel in and worship Christ in light of. Christ, based off his work, based off his finished work of redemption, is seated at the right hand of God. The sitting of Christ signifies, saints, that he has completed the work of redemption. He's fulfilled the covenant demands that were laid before him in eternity past. He became incarnate so that he can have, so, so we can have one who is like us, live for us and die for us. He completed and fulfilled the law in order to release us from under the condemnation of the law. We are no longer bound to the law. We obey the law, but we are not under the law as a curse. He suffered and gave his life as a substitute for our sins and was raised for our justification, saints. And after Christ was raised and ascended to heaven, the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. After making purification for sins, this one, this perfect sacrifice sat down. Christ sitting tells us that the debt that we owe to God has been paid by the perfect life and death of Jesus Christ. It tells us, saints, that Christ's death was a once-for-all sacrifice, an event that is perfect and unrepeatable. We are not to be like the Roman Catholics who re-sacrifice Christ daily. We are not to, we are not to have those, those crosses where Christ is on the cross still, but Christ is off the cross. He's ascended to the right hand of God. He is seated. His work is finished. Saints, we are not to look at our external work and what we can do for Christ when we think of the Christian life. We are not to look at our private prayer log. We are not to look at all the people whom we fellowship with during the week. We are not to look at all the times we attended church, all the times we read our Bible, 
all the times we went to all the external activities in church that, the, that they are throwing, but we are to look to Christ, the one who sitteth at the right hand of the Father and his finished perfect work. How do you know that you are saved? If you look to Christ and him alone. Those things, reading, obeying God's law, prayer, are, are all byproducts of after you acknowledge the fact that Christ is seated, that Christ's finished work is done, is complete. Look to Christ, our only hope. And, saw, and the psalmist here is bringing out Christ in all of his glory and his finished and perfect work. Saints, that's truth that we are to live by. That is truth that we stand on. For if Christ's work is not finished, if he is not seated at the right hand, then you are not safe in Christ. Then you are not completely, infallibly, inerrantly justified before God. We are to praise Christ. We are to praise God and his Christ. For he is seated. He's finished the work that we have failed to complete. He did it on our behalf. So saints, that's the first point I want us to see in verses 1 through 3 in Psalm 110. The second point we see is Christ's power. Christ's power. And we see Christ's power at the end of verse 1 and verse 2. It reads, Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. What we see plainly in this verse, saints, or in this verse and a half, is Christ's power over all of his enemies. Christ not only is the king who sits on the throne, but Christ has power over all his enemies. Notice what the ending of verse 1 says, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The son is at the right hand of God. Until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. Charles Spurgeon commenting on this verse says, Jesus is placed in a seat of power, dominion, and dignity. And is to sit there by divine appointment while Jehovah fights for him. And he lays every rebel beneath his feet. He sits there by the father's ordinance and call. And will sit there despite all the raging of his adversaries. Until they all are brought to utter shame by his putting his foot upon their necks. This verse speaks of the the subduing power of Christ. To be a footstool for someone means to, to be completely subject to him or her. It means that the battle has been won in complete dominant fashion. And saints, although the language is metaphorical, The message is not those who oppose Christ, those who mock Christ, those who will not bow their knee to Christ are the ones who will be Christ's footstool. Those ones who mock Christ, who mock you for acknowledging and bowing your knee to Christ will be the ones who Christ places under his feet. Christ's enemies will fall, saints. They will come under subjection to our king. And we should be eager to warn those who oppose Christ of this coming judgment. That there is one who is going to come, who is going to place you under his feet. He will utterly destroy you. Saints, we are to be eager in our evangelism. We are to be eager to tell our family, friend, and co-worker of our Christ. Who is the king that you are, uh, you are to bow your knee to this Christ. You are not to put him on, on a, on a, on a trial and, and say, well, if Jesus is God, then why do, why did my son die in infancy? Or if Jesus is God, then, then why am I going through all this drama? Apart from all of your mess, Jesus Christ is God. And we are to bow to him. We will either bow to him by grace or Christ will uh, utterly destroy us, and therefore we will bow to him. As we move on, the, as we move on, the psalmist David continues to expand the power of Christ in verse two. It reads, "The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, "Rule in the midst of your enemies." The scepter is a symbol of Christ's right to rule. It is a symbol of His absolute power and authority. 
The rod of Christ's word, the rod of Christ, which is a, another way of saying scepter, is Christ's word. We're to think of this scepter as Christ's word. And Christ from his throne strikes down the arrogant and the proud with his word. Just as Moses used his rod to judge Pharaoh and his Egyptian armies, Christ uses his rod to judge the wicked. You see, saints, Christ's word, yes, is a comfort to our souls. But to the wicked, it is a light that exposes their darkness. God's word exposes those who dwell in the dark. The writer of the book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4.12, for the word of the God, uh, for the Lord of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word convicts us. God's word challenges us. It strengthens us. But saints, we are not to forget that God's word judges us. And that is a good thing. We ought to be judged by something that is higher than us. We don't want our friends to judge us. We want God's word to judge us. We want God's word to put us in line. Not our mama, not our, not our daddy, not our grandmas, although those are wholesome things. We can ask for advice, but ultimately we look to Christ's word and we see what Christ's word says. And if Christ's word judges us, then we conform to Christ's word. We obey what Christ says. And saints, this is the first point that the psalmist David is trying to get through. And that is our Christ is king and he is ruling with his word. In our response to Christ's kingship, what do we say in light of Christ being the king? Well, we are to respond with obedience and reverence. That's how we are to respond when we think of Christ's kingship, his authority, his dominion, his ruling over all of his enemies, his defeating of his enemies. We are, to, we are to look at this Christ and we are to obey him. We are to obey him for he is the king and we are his people. We, we don't have, uh, we, we are not to come to any objections to his rule for our God is a good king. We are to see what Christ says in his word and we are to obey what he says. Christ is the king and I, we as the kingdom people are to follow his law. We also are to have reverence for him. We are to have reverence for our king. When we think of Christ's kingship, we are to worship him. We are to glorify him. We are to exalt him. And remember, when we say that we exalt Christ, we are not saying that we are taking Christ and we are placing him higher than what he already is. But saints, what we are doing is we are amening the exaltation that he already possesses in and of himself. The glory that Christ has is a glory that he has in and of himself that we do not give to him, as our confession says in chapter 2. The saints, we are to uh, amen his majesty. We are to amen his kingship. We are to serve our king and not serve ourselves. We are not to serve our selfish ambitions. You see, saints, we have a tendency to think that we are the sovereign and we are the kings in our own lives. Until we get smacked with the truth of Psalm 110, that there is one who rules above you. There is one who rules even those on earth that are above you. You are not the sovereign. You are not the king. You are, you, uh, you are those who come under uh, the foot of Christ. And not, not as his enemies, but those who are his friends. Those who are his, those who are his brothers and sisters. Those who are his children. Saints, when we think of the kingship of Christ, we are to think of, of the obedience of, of our obedience to his kingship and also our reverence to his majesty. Now, saints, we are to consider the second point, and that is Christ the priest. Not only is Christ our king, but in verse 4, Christ is put forth. He's set forth as our priest. So what we see is Christ as our priest king. And if you have a Bible, it will be noteworthy and wholesome to consider Verse 4, look at verse 4 if you will. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Many have stated that verse 4, saints, is the sweetest verse in all of chapter 110. For it speaks not of our Christ ruling, but our Christ who is our Savior. You see, saints, 
We need our Christ. We need one who is not simply our ruler and king, but we need Christ who is our savior. We need Christ who is our great and high priest. And verse four saints highlights the priestly office of our Lord, which begs the question, what is a priest? When we think of the priestly office of Christ, what do we mean when we say priest? We know what a king does. A king rules, reigns. He sits on a throne. He defends against his enemies. But what does a priest do? And Hebrews 5 verses 1 through 3 tells us, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on the behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifice for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is blessed with weakness or or, or beside weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. What we gather in Hebrews 5 is a priest is one who was chosen by God to offer sacrifices on the behalf of himself and others. In other words, a priest represents a sinful people before holy God. If you think of it this way, if you are the people and if I am the priest, we have God. In order for your sins to be cleansed, you come to me, the priest. I am that go-between between you and God. A priest makes intercession on the behalf of his people. And here in Psalm four, in, uh, verse 4 of Psalm 110, the psalmist David speaks of the priestly office of Christ in two ways. First, he speaks of Christ, Christ's priestly office as everlasting. Christ is an everlasting priest. The writer of the book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 6, 19 through 20, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place between the curtain, behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on the, on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The eternal priesthood of Christ means that the sacrifice that Christ offers on the behalf of his people is one that is unrepeatable and perfect. You see, saints, the priests in the old covenant, those priests in the old days, their work was never done. They would continually offer a sacrifice for themselves and on the behalf of their people. There was no such thing as a priest sitting A priest would always stand, for their work was never done. A sacrifice would keep coming in day after day after day. But our Christ, our great high priest, is a superior priest to the ones of the old covenant. For Christ, for Christ's sacrifice was a once for all sacrifice. Christ did not have to offer himself up year after year, but Christ offered himself up once, an unrepeatable, perfect event. And based off our Lord's perfect sacrifice, God raised him from the dead. Therefore, Jesus Christ's priestly office is permanent. For he is eternal, immortal, and invincible. Our great high priest will never die. There will never be one, in, there will never be a time where our great high priest will need to be replaced with another priest, which was common in the old covenant. Jesus is a priest forever. Our great high priest is superior to the old covenant priest for he can offer and he can do what the, all those old covenant priests could not do. And that is he can offer a permanent final sacrifice. He can offer to God a perfect permanent once for all solution. Meaning the sacrifices the priest would offer up in the old covenant saints were temporal. The, the blood of bulls and goats did not clear the conscience. The, the blood of bulls and goats did not wipe away sins forever entirely. But the sacrifice Christ offers up has effectual, eternal effects. Meaning, saints, that Christ's precious blood is not a blood that just cleanses our sins for a year, a month, or a day. But Christ's precious blood cleanses our sins forever. He washes our sins away forever. Not just for a temporal amount of time. But Christ's perfect blood 
is of, of infinite value, saints. One drop of our Christ's blood is of infinite value. That is why he can remove an infinite amount of sin. Our Christ, uh, our Christ and his sacrifice was an everlasting sacrifice. So it's fitting, saints, based off of Christ's everlasting sacrifice, that he's an everlasting priest. And saints, this is why David brings up Melchizedek in verse 4. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is a unique individual, for we don't have much information on who Melchizedek is. But what we do know about him is he typologically prefigures Christ. What do I mean by that? I mean, Melchizedek points forward to Jesus Christ. He pictures our Christ kingly and priestly office. Some things are noteworthy. Melchizedek was a priest king who points forward to Christ, who is a priest king. Melchizedek's name prefigures the character of Lord. Melchizedek's name literally means king of righteousness. His name means king of righteousness. What do we know about our Christ? Well, Christ lived a perfectly righteous life, providing to us, providing to us saints a righteousness that we do not have in and of ourselves, a righteousness that we lost in Adam. Christ credited to our account. He doesn't just, he doesn't just give us a positive balance, but he gives us a positive balance and he overflows our bank account. And it's Christ's perfect righteousness that is a credit to us when we believe in him by faith, by the Spirit. In Christ's death, he died to receive the righteous judgment of holy God against our sins. Christ is fitted to be the king of righteousness, for he is the king of righteousness. Melchizedek also was the king of Salem. And Salem means peace. Melchizedek can also be referred to as the king of of peace, which points forward to our Christ, for our Christ is the king of priests. What does Christ do? In his death, he reconciles us to God. What does Paul say in Romans 5.1? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Saints, that is truth that we are always to be reminded of. We are not to be reminded of how great we are. We are to be reminded of how great Christ is and what he has done for us. He made peace with God on our behalf. He took sinful man and holy God and he reconciled them together. Not that they can have a cordial relationship, not that they have a high and by relationship, but they are friends. You are God's friend. You are a friend of God. You are no longer a slave. You are no longer a sin or an Adam when God views you, but you are in Christ. You are clothed with his perfect righteousness. You are a child of the most high. When we think of Christ and what he has done, we aren't to think, we aren't to, uh, uh, forget the peace that Christ has made between sinful man and holy God. There was only one person that could have made peace, saints. All of your actions, all of your duties, all of your, all of your, all of the things, all the religious duties that you think that you can do and, and, and try to merit some peace before holy God is all of filthy rags in the sight of God. There's only one that we are to look to, one who has made peace with God, and that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And lastly, Melchizedek pre- prefigures the priesthood of Christ and that Melchizedek represents an eternal priesthood. Stay with me here because it's getting a little technical, but Hebrews 7, 3 tells us he is without father or mother. Speaking of Melchizedek, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God. He continues a priest forever. Now, saints, when we read of this, the, the, the writer of the book of Hebrews is not saying that Melchizedek did not have a biological father or mother, but But it is to say that the priesthood of Melchizedek stands outside of the priesthood of Levi and Aaron. What do I mean by that? The priesthood belonged to the Levites. In order for one to be a priest, they had to come from the line of Aaron. They had to be a Levite. 
And what we see in Melchizedek is Melchizedek's priesthood is above, beyond, and substantially different from that of Aaron and the Levites, for he is not from the bloodline of that of Aaron and Levites. He is a different priest. He is a king priest. He is an eternal priest, just as Christ's priesthood is above, beyond, is substantially different than that of Aaron and the Levites. Christ is not from the bloodline of Aaron and the Levites. He's from the bloodline of royal King David. Christ as priest, as Christ, uh, Christ uh, was a priest in the order of Melchizedek, a higher order and above and beyond that of Levi. What do I mean by this, saints? What are we all trying to say? It means that Christ's priesthood shows that the Levitical priesthood of the old covenant would pass away and a new priesthood will live forever. What do we mean by that? What we mean is, Those old sacrifices, those old priests would pass away. Those sacrifices that would have to be brought day after day and year after year would be done away with. And there would be one, one priest who would offer up one sacrifice forever, forever. As the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 7 verses 15 through 16, and what uh, we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest, and hear this, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of indestructible life. The point being made is this, saints, and the point that I'm trying to make throughout the entire sermon is everything you have in Christ is better. Everything you have in Christ is better. Everything uh, that we have in Christ is far superior than everything those people had in the old covenant. There was nothing permanent about the old covenant. The priests would be replaced. The sacrifices were temporary. The old covenant in and of itself did not save. But everything in Christ surpasses and is far better We have a better, far superior high priest. We have not a priest that comes and then, and the next year we meet another priest and next year we meet another priest and a different priest. We have one priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose work is finished, who can sit down, whose office is irreplaceable. In Christ saints, we have a better sacrifice, a sacrifice that permanently washes away our sins. In Christ, saints, we are a members of a better covenant. The new covenant that Christ inaugurates with his blood is established on better promises. Friends, if you are in Christ this morning, if you are of the faith, then you are forever blessed. You are forever blessed. Not just blessed with earthly riches, but you are blessed with all the riches of Christ You are blessed with adoption. You are blessed with justification. You are blessed with the spirit that helps sanctify you. You are blessed with regenerate eyes so you can hear a preaching like this, a sermon like this, and you can nod your head and you can say amen. You are blessed, saints, in Christ. As long as you are kept in Christ, saints, you are forever blessed. You will forever, forever, you know, similar to the Sandlot guy, forever have peace with God. There will never be one day when you will not have peace with God as long as you remain in Christ. In Christ, saints, your sins will never be accounted against you. If you remain, or I should say, if Christ keeps you in him, in Christ, saints, you'll forever remain justified. There'll never be a day, saints, when, 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 when God says you are no longer justified, but, but you are declared guilty. Remember that our God cannot change. Our God cannot change. For if Christ's sacrifice was sufficient, if it was a once for all sacrifice, and if it was accepted, then in order for you to be unjustified, then Christ's sacrifice would have to be removed entirely. Saints, as long as Christ keeps you among the sheep, then you are forever his. You are forever his. 
He is our king, saints, who rules, and he is our priest who keeps us. And, and as we consider our last point, we, can, we are to consider the Christ as the conqueror. We see not only Christ as our priest king, but Christ is our conqueror. And this is the sweetest. And some say verse 4 of Christ's priestly office is the sweetest, which it is in many respects. But these last verses, verses 5 through 7, should bring us all good cheer. We should leave here uh, shouting amen and skipping on the way out. For this is glorious truth that we are not never to forget. Consider verse 5 through 7. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over the broad country. And he will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Glorious truth. Glorious verses that we are to, again, marvel in. Saints, the language that we have in these, in these verses are indeed graphic. There's, they're, 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 uh, to a certain extent, they're unsettling when we think of the graphic language. But saints, this speaks of the type of victory Christ will have. Although this language is graphic, it is glorious. For this is victory, victorious language. Verses 5 through 7 are a fitting way to end the messianic psalm that prophesies of this second coming of Christ. And saints, when we think of the, the return of Christ, there was much debate over when he's going to return, the nature of his return. We have to keep this in mind at our forefront, that Christ will have the victory. No matter where you stand in the millennial totem pole, priest, uh, pre, all, or post, you are to keep at the forefront of your mind that the end will be far greater than the beginning. That, that it will not be like this forever. But Christ will have the victory. And, I, and, and, and what we see in verses 5 through 7, we see the nature of this victory. If we, if we say amen to Christ having victory, verses 5 through 7 shows us the type of victory, the nature of the victory how Christ will be victorious and what this victory will look like. In verse 5, it says, He will shatter kings in the day of His wrath. The same language is used in verse 6. He will shatter the chief men over the broad country. In verse 6, He will fill them with corpses. And in verse 7, He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, He will lift up His head. Saints, what these verses mean is the kingdom of Jesus Christ will triumph in history before the return of Christ. That the kingdom of Christ will be victorious before the return of Christ. These texts establish that Christ will not leave his place at the Father's right hand. Remember remember verse 1. The Christ will not leave his Father's right hand until, until all of his enemies have become his footstool. Saints, the kingdom of Christ will triumph and all the nations, all the nations will submit to his reign. All nations, all kings, all governors, all high men will submit to Christ. The kingdom of Christ will triumph. And saints, we aren't to think that Christ will return. And again, there's much debate over this, but we aren't to think that when Christ return, then he was going to wage war on all of his enemies. And then there's going to be this big uh, uh, galactic uh, cosmic, click, uh, cosmic uh, battle that's happening between the enemies of Christ and Christ himself. But saints, when we read of these verses, verses 5 through 7, they aren't primarily speaking of when Christ will return, but rather is speaking of Christ conquering currently. Not when Christ will return and then he will do all of these things that verse 5 through 7 says. But Christ is conquering right now. As we speak, while Christ sits at the right hand of God, Christ's enemies are being made his footstool. Now, many of you might object since we look at the world around us and it seems like the world is getting worse and worse and more dark and dark and more wicked and wicked. But in spite of how wicked and evil the world looks, saints, and, and, how, and how sinful we think the world is going, 
We are not to forget Psalm 110. I don't care what the world is doing. I don't care how wicked the evil the world is going. My authority is the Bible and what God says and what Psalm 110 says. Saints, the newspaper, CNN, MSNBC, and any current events shouldn't form and give us our worldview. We don't say, we don't look at the news and say, well, based off of what, what Iraq or what Afghanistan or what Donald Trump is doing, then, then, then the world is going to turn out this way. Saints, we look to the Bible and what the Bible says. We look to scripture to shape our worldview. And what we see in scripture, specifically in Psalm 110 verses five through seven, it is kings will and are being destroyed. Chief men are and will be destroyed. And saints, we are to be of good cheer this morning for Christ will win in the end. Christ will win in the end. But not only that, Christ is winning right now. Christ is winning right now and he will win in the end. The church will prevail, saints. We will not be, be we will not be sieged. We will, we will not become uh, be drawn underwater, but we will prevail. For Christ is leading the charge. Our God will conquer. And saints, as we close, we are to walk away with these three truths. The first is Christ is the king. Christ is seated at the right hand of God and he's ruling and reigning. He is the king, and as the king, he doesn't just rule and reign without having any regard for his people. But our king protects us, saints. We often think, well, we are protected by angels. Saints, you are protected by the king. Jesus Christ is protecting you. Our king preserves us. As, as uh, John uh, 10 tells us, no one will snatch us out of the hand of Christ. No one will snatch you. Not the devil. Not all the devil's minions, not even sin, will snatch you out of Christ's hands. The king preserves us, saints, but also our Christ protects us. For he is the good shepherd who stands at the door. And he is the one who protects us from all the thieves and the wolves. Secondly, Christ is our high priest. Christ's priestly office is an everlasting one. It's it's one of everlasting efficacy. His sacrifice was one of perfection. And now, saints, based off of Christ's sacrifice, what do we do in response? We offer ourselves up as a sacrifice of praise. Based off of what Christ has done for us, we are to look at our Christ, say amen, have faith in him, and in return, we are to offer ourselves up as a sacrifice of praise. We are to obey his law. We are to gather with the saints. We are to read his word. We are to pray to him. We are to offer up mind, body, soul, will, everything to our Lord. And lastly, Christ is our conqueror. Saints, we don't have one on the throne who's planning a specific and perfect time to strike his enemies who's blueprinting a time to come down and, and when his enemies are not looking, strike them down. But right now, currently, Christ is bringing all of his enemies under subjection 